If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John. We just read through the passage. We'll try not to reread it as we go through it. Sometimes, sometimes I reread things and sometimes I don't, so we'll just see what happens. Last week, we, uh, we closed out the first section of our church covenant. Um, if you've been following along with the sermons, um, you know that we're about halfway through, if you look at the paragraphs, um, we're actually a little bit more than halfway through our church covenant. Um, but it's interesting, I was not part of the, the drafting of the covenant. It was here uh, when I came here uh, 14 years ago or so. Um, so I, I don't know, you know what all the thought process was that was involved and how they structured it and put things together. But I did find it interesting as I was looking at it. Uh, this week, you know, noticing that we were moving on to the second section, that there, those two sections really are fairly distinct. Um, if you look at the the statements in the first section, they're they're all very much related to how we relate to one another within the body of Christ. Um, so that's it's things like we've been talking about, you know, reconciling differences and um, you know how we relate to leadership and and all those different things. You can go through it. I didn't I didn't write it down. We're not going to reread it. But that's kind of the first half of the church covenant. And then the second half really is more about how we are going to live personally. So we have how we're going to relate to one another publicly, and then how we're going to rate, how we're going to live personally, how we're going to fulfill the things that God calls us to be and do as individuals. That would include um, what we're going to talk about today, walking with Christ, that personal walk. Uh, that would include things like our, our family roles, uh, husbands, wives, parents, children, um, and then how we personally evangelize those around us. I think those are the all the things in the, in the second half of there. Um, but, but that's going to be the kind of the focus now. We've, we've talked about how we relate as the body of Christ. Now we're going to be talking about how we live personally. And uh, I don't know if you're like me, but growing up in, in the kind of the church culture that I grew up in, the personal walk was always preached. Um, it was very much uh, something that was quite frankly, a lot of times very outward focused as far as how, you know, making sure that you're following this thing and this thing and this thing. Um, but it was, it was very much preached, your personal walk. Um, but it, for me, it always felt like that was kind of where everything ended. Like there was this personal walk that was preached that you needed to have with our Savior Jesus Christ, but that was just kind of your thing to take care of. You know, you need, to, you need to make sure that you're, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And, and uh, if there was some sort of a, maybe an accountability partner, that was, that was always something that was thrown out there. You're right? you need to have an accountability partner, right? Has anybody ever tried having an accountability partner? Um, usually they don't work out very long because especially in that, in that kind of culture, um, there's, not a, there's not a good grounding for it. But really, God does desire for us. We just looked last week at, uh, at restoring sinning brethren, right? So God desires for us to hold one another accountable. That's one of the reasons why we have these personal items in our church covenant. Because it's one thing to say, I'm going to relate to you guys correctly when I come together, when I gather with you guys. I'm going I'm to make sure that I'm living right then. But it's another thing to say, hey, I want you guys to hold me accountable to how I walk the rest of my life. 
I want you guys to hold me accountable to how I'm pursuing my relationship with God. I want you guys to hold me accountable to how I'm interacting with my wife, how I'm interacting with my children. Because those are areas that we sin in as well. And we can very easily fall into the trap of of falling into sins in these private areas of life that nobody knows about. And it's, it's kind of hard to uh, pursue one another in restoration if nobody knows what's going on in your personal life. And so I think it's really important that we have this mindset of, of our personal walk and our, and our personal relationships are not just this private thing that, you know, we've got to hold, you know, so closely and tightly. We should be close enough with one another. Maybe it's just a few people. I'm not saying we come in every Sunday and air our dirty laundry. You know, well, my wife and I had a fight this week. You know, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. But there should be people within the church body that you are close enough with, that you have a deep enough relationship with, that you can share those intimate realities of your personal life, your personal walk with Christ, your relationships in your family your relationships to people outside the church and in gospel witness. There should be accountability, as much as I don't like that word necessarily, but there should be relationship in that. One of the things that we do as elders is we come and we meet every Thursday. We have an elders meeting every Thursday. And one of the things that we talk about is how we're doing because we're not perfect you know, we have things that we need to, to change and grow in. And so that's one of the things that we do as elders is we help hold one another accountable and, and also encourage one another. You know, it's, it's, you don't want to just come in and get beat up by, by your friend every time you get together. Well, you know, you need to be doing this and this. You know, there's grace and there's encouragement, but there's also accountability and rebuke. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, actually, it's been Several weeks ago, I mean, we were talking about uh, how to respond to leadership. I mentioned Andy is our rebuking elder. Um, he's, he's very good at uh, calling us out on things that we know that we're, we're not quite uh, living up to what we should. But that's, that's a very important part of covenant membership, is those relationships where we can interact with one another and, and be real with one another about our struggles and about these areas that, that we might think of more as our private life. So this morning we're going to talk about <clears throat> kind of that first area of our, of our private life in Christianity, if you want to call it that. Um, and really it's the foundational element. Because if this is not right, if this is not working, then all the other pieces of our relationships are going to fall apart. They're going to be, they're going to be very superficial. They're going, to, we're, they're going to fall into sinful habits if this is not correct. And that's, that is our walk with Christ. Uh, the title of the message this morning is Walking with Christ. So the second section of our covenant starts with this statement. It says, we will strive for personal growth in our relationship with Christ. We will strive for personal growth in our relationship with Christ. And I'll be honest, as I was looking at this, um, I had to ask myself that question, what does that mean? What does that mean? You know, we hear this phrase a lot, this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, we often hear this phrase when, we, uh, when we're trying to make a distinction between 
what we believe and what other religions believe, right? We, we like to use this phrase in Christianity. It's not a, you can say it, come on. It's not a religion. It's a, all right, say it louder. It's not a religion. It's a relationship, right? We like that phrase. It's pithy, right? It's, it's short. It's sweet. It's, it packs a punch, right? We're not like those other religions. It, it's not a religion. It's a relationship, So my question this morning is, how's that relationship? How's that relationship? What is that relationship? Uh, I actually did. I typed this into into Google. I said, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? And there's a lot, a lot (laughs) of blog posts and, you know, Bible stuff that come up on the, on the screen, and um, lots of information, lots of ideas of what it means to have a relationship with God. And, and honestly, most of them um, really dealt with having a relationship with God through salvation. I think really most of the time, that's probably what we first think of, having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through salvation. And that is absolutely 100% true. But it goes beyond that. The relationship with God, relationship with Christ, really starts there. And it should be something that is growing and increasing and and, and getting better and getting sweeter over time. And so my question for you this morning is, is that the reality of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you experiencing a relationship with Jesus Christ that is growing, that is excelling, that is getting sweeter and sweeter? Are you experiencing a relationship with Jesus Christ maybe that's getting less? Maybe for some reason it's not as sweet anymore. Or maybe it's just kind of the same. You know, well, I'm saved, brother. Praise the Lord. And that's about as far as it goes. That's as deep as it gets. Um, I don't know where you're at this morning, but I I want you to just take a a real quick assessment of that personal relationship with Christ. Where are you at? Do you know him intimately or do you just know about him? Is he real to you or is he just, you know, the savior? Is he just this kind of nebulous idea that, that we believe in. What is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? So we're going to look at 1 John, and really the book of 1 John as a whole um, gives us a lot of tests to help us determine two things. One, first of all, if we are in the faith, and then secondly, it gives us tests to help us determine if we are growing in the faith, if we're continuing in the faith, if we are, if we are seeing evidences of Christ changing us to become more like himself. And so I really like the way that, that John wrote these first few uh, verses, and I feel like they, they kind of lead us into a biblical understanding of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we're just going to look at those first 16 verses this morning. Again, there's a lot in the rest of the first book of John. I, I would highly recommend you go home and read it. It's not that long. Um, in fact, when I, I gave the, uh, 
the verses to Eric to put in your, your handout, he goes, oh man, you're doing more than a chapter. That's ambitious. And I said, there's only 10 verses in it. <laughs> He's like, oh, that's right. It's, it's okay. So it's not a very long book. The book of 1 John is pretty short. You can get through it in a, in a, in a very pretty quick sit down. Um, you can listen to it. You can read it. But I would, I would recommend going through and listening to it or reading it because it's going to kind of take some of these initial thoughts of what it means to be in a relationship with Christ and what it means to grow in that relationship, relationship with Christ. And it's just going to kind of add to it. It's going to re-bolster the things that he's, that he's discussing here in the beginning. So I want to encourage you to, to read out the rest of it. The first thing that I want to point out here that I've observed from uh, this passage this morning is the person of the relationship. The person of the relationship. Now, obviously, part of that relationship is us, right? So one of the persons of the relationship is us. Um, John even mentions here that we have fellowship with them, meaning uh, the other apostles, the people he's writing to. He's talking about the other apostles. He's talking about other believers. So there is also a relationship that's being talked about here in the book of 1 John of our relationship with one another in the body of Christ. But the focal person of the relationship that John is talking about here is the person of Jesus Christ. And he talks about this person in a couple of different ways as he's kind of revealing who that person is. And it's interesting if you go and you look at his gospel, the gospel of John, he kind of starts 1 John similarly to the way that he starts the book, the gospel of John. Right? If you know the Gospel of John, it starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, etc. Right? So, and then he says, skipping down, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? So we have this idea of Jesus Christ, the eternal one becoming man. And here in this passage, we see John doing the same thing. And he starts off with this description. He says, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. He's pointing out once again, the eternality of Christ. That Christ has always been. He, he always has been. He is and he always will be. He is eternal because he is God. And so I, I think that's an important thing to remember when we think about this relationship with God, this relationship with Jesus Christ, that it's a, it's a relationship with a real person who is eternal. In that eternality is also infinite reality. He is, he's an infinite being. He's someone that can never be completely comprehended or known by finite beings such as ourselves. But he is eternal. He says, that which was from the beginning... But he's still a person because he, he says, we've witnessed him, right? Which we have seen or which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He goes back into this uh, word motif like he does in the gospel. He says, the word, the eternal word of God, we've seen him. We've touched him. We've heard him. We, we know that John calls himself uh, the, gospel, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John had a special relationship with Christ. 
And I think it's only fitting that John is the one that really writes the most about that relationship with Christ, that personal walk, as we're going to see uh, in many of the, the scriptures that we'll look at this morning. John knew Christ as a person. He's not just this entity. He's not just this force. He's not just this, um, this historical figure that lived long ago. He is a real, living, active person today. Have you ever have you thought about that recently? Yes, we know that he was real. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He gave his life for us on the cross. He died the gruesome death to pay the penalty for our sin. We're, we're all understanding of that, and we're, and we're very grateful for it, and we love it. But I think sometimes, since he has gone to heaven, we kind of don't view him as much as a person anymore. And yet he is. John's saying he's a real person. We have a real person with which to have this relationship. And that is Jesus Christ. He's an eternal person. But he's also a man. He's also a man. He came to earth and he lived that perfect life. He was God incarnate. We've touched him. We've seen him. Verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. Jesus is a person. He's a person not just when he was on earth, but he's a person now even at the Father's side. And he is a person that we can interact with, that we can have a relationship with. And I know sometimes it may sound weird to try to have a relationship with somebody that we can't see. Somebody that we can't necessarily hear with our ears. We don't have the same experiences that John had. We don't get to walk with Christ physically and hear him speak audibly to us and touch him. We don't get those experiences, but he is still just as much the same person as the one that John was able to interact with. And I think we, re- need, we need to remember that when we talk about having this personal relationship with Christ. It's not this nebulous concept of having a relationship with a vague God. It's a real person. It's Jesus Christ. He's a person who came for a purpose. It says in verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Why? so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Jesus came to redeem us, but he also came, and in that redemption, he came to provide a way for man to have fellowship with God. He came to redeem us, but in that, he came to provide a way for us to have fellowship with God. That was his purpose. His purpose was to restore the fellowship that had been broken. We'll look at that here in just a minute. But there was a purpose for this person to exist. He is part of the Godhead. He's part of the Trinity. Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he is a, as God, he is still a distinct person within that triune Godhead, Godhead. And he desires for us to know him. He is the one who is being proclaimed so that we can have fellowship. We've 
mentioned this before, but again, I just want to remind you what that word fellowship means. As we think about it in the context of having a relationship with Christ, it's the Greek word koinonia. It's the act of sharing in the activities or the privileges of an intimate association or group. Think about that. The act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or group. God wants to fellowship with us. He wants to have that intimate relationship with us. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That the God who spoke everything into existence wants to have a personal walk with you. Yes, we have fellowship with John and the other believers but we have fellowship with God specifically through Jesus Christ. Again, we believe in the Trinity. We believe that there's one God and three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, so when we say that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, as we say in our covenant, you know, we're going to grow in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When we say that, we're really saying that we're having a relationship with God because Jesus is God. Um, in, here, in this passage, John clearly calls out our relationship with the Father, right? And he calls out our relationship with his Son, Jesus Christ. Um, what about the third person? Well, it's not in this specific passage, but there are other, uh, there's other passages. I'll just give you one in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14, that mentions fellowship with the Spirit as well. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All right. So we do have the word of God giving us actually calls to and, and, and uh, prayers for fellowship with all three persons of the Godhead. I, I think that's interesting. I think that's uh, kind of cool to think that it doesn't just say with God, but there are, there are even distinct ways in which we can have fellowship with God, the father and with God, the son and with God, the Holy Spirit. So why do we focus on Jesus Christ in our uh, covenant? Well, as I said, I didn't write it, so um, I don't know exactly why they did. But as I was, was studying for this and as I was looking through um, all the different verses and, and things about fellowship and abiding, we see most of the concepts and the teaching about fellowshipping with God being done through the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we focus, because Scripture mostly focuses on that relationship with Jesus and our interaction with Jesus. And I, I think that's appropriate when you think about who Jesus is as a person. He was the person. He was the man who interacted with people. He was the man who was on earth healing people. He was the man who was on earth teaching people. He was the man who went to a cross for us. He is the Savior. I think it's only right that he be the main focus. And, and honestly, I think most of Scripture, the focus is on Christ and how he brings us back into a relationship with God. So that is why we focus on Jesus. Um, it's, fo it's fellowshipping with God through Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, emphasizing uh, that we are fellowshipping with God through Christ. 
But I think another reason is because Christ is relatable to us. You know, the Father is not quite as relatable to us. You know, Jesus said, no man has, has seen God at any time. I'm the one that reveals him. And so he's relatable to us. He's, he's lived through the, the life of, of a man. He knows the things that we struggle with. Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a, more, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So one of the reasons why we focus on Jesus Christ in, in this desire to grow in this relationship is because he's the one that is relatable. He understands what we're going through. The things that we are struggling with, this, the temptations that we face, he understands them. He's faced them. He knows what it's like to live the human life. John 14, verse 8, verses 8 through 11 says this, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Christ came to earth to redeem us, but in that process, he came to earth to reveal the Father to us. He came to reveal what God is like and how he lived. And so when we have build that relationship with Christ, we are learning more about him. We're learning more about the Father as well because they are both God. Yes, they are different persons, but they are both God. And when we have that relationship and we grow in that relationship with Christ, we are growing in that relationship with God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the person of this relationship. But why do we need this relationship? Why do we need to have this relationship with God? Um, the next thing I want to look at is, is the prerequisites for this relationship. So we, we don't get to just have this relationship out of thin air, right? We can't just uh, wake up one morning and be like, I'm going to have a relationship with God today. Right? It doesn't work like that. There's, there's some prerequisites here to be able to have a relationship with God. Um, look at verse 5. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. All right? So there's something important that John needs to make sure that we understand. This is what Jesus came to tell us. Right? He says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. See, God is a holy God. God is a holy God. There are many passages that talk about his holiness, and I think many times, especially when we, when we think about our own Christian lives, it's easy for us to, to know that 
concept, but not allow that concept to affect the way that we live. We know that God is holy, and it's almost like we're okay with God being holy as long as we kind of keep that in the realm of salvation, right? As long as we kind of keep that over here in this box of the gospel, that God is holy, and he's, but he's made a way, you know, etc. But God is still holy even after we've been saved. He's still holy in that relationship as we attempt to relate to him and as he draws us and calls us to relate to himself. He is still holy. And that affects our relationship or the ability for us to have a relationship with him. It affects the ability for us to grow in our relationship with him. God is a holy God. Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 5 says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings, and two, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And look at the response. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Other translations say, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God is a holy God. And his holiness demands that those who are in a relationship with him be holy. His holiness demands that those in a relationship with him be holy. Matthew 5, 48 says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. If we are going to have a relationship with God, if we are going to grow in our relationship with God, God requires us to be holy. What does John say back here in 1 John? He says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the, his word is not in us. The reality is that we are not holy people. We are not holy people. And the prerequisite for a relationship with God is that we are holy as he is holy. Now, positionally, if we are in Christ we are justified. We are righteous. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
We have his purity given to us. And when God looks at us, he sees Christ and his perfection. And he doesn't see us and our sin. He's, he's taken that away. He's separated as far as the east is from the west. But the reality is, in our daily walk, we're still sinners. We talked about that last week. We talked about the fact that we all still fail. We all still sin. We all still do things that God doesn't desire for us to do or, or don't do things that God has called us to do. The very common verse, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, even believers. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Mark 7.20-23 says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, even envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Before Christ came, we were slaves to sin. But thankfully, because of Christ, we have redemption. And positionally, in Christ, we can be presented as holy to God. And that is how our relationship with him begins. It begins because Christ makes us holy. So that we can have that relationship with a holy God who is light and cannot have a relationship with darkness. So we can have that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But yet, as we seek to grow in that relationship, we're going to fail and we're going to fall. We looked last week at, at, the, at the chapter where, where Paul says, the things that I want to do that are good, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do that are evil, I find myself doing. Because of this flesh, because of sin. And we all fail. But thankfully, what does that say? Probably all of you have it memorized. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's not just in regards to salvation. That's in regards to how we walk daily. Now, we talked about this last week, but positionally, we're saved, right? Even when we fail and we sin, we are still saved, God is not the one walking away, but we walk away, right? And in repentance, we need to turn back to him and to return back to a holiness of lifestyle, one that is following how he desires us to live. Now, notice I said one that's following how he desires us to live, right? This isn't a, a list of things, you know, I've got to make sure I do this and this and this. Because when we start building those lists, it's really easy for us to become proud of that list. Well, I got, I got all my spiritual check boxes done today. And right then we just fell into pride. And that hinders our relationship with God because he is a holy God. Do you think about that when you spend your time reading the word of God? When you come before him in, in prayer 
And when you desire to grow and to know him better, do you remember that he is a holy God? And that those who fellowship with him must be holy. That's one of the reasons why we have this time of confession in, our, in the early stages of our, of our uh, service. It's so that we can come together out of the busyness of life and, and just examine ourselves before that holy God as we seek to worship him and as we seek to adore him and as we seek to learn from him, our hearts may not be clean. And so we have this time to just come before the Lord and if there's anything between us and him, any way that we have wandered away that he is calling us back from, that we would come back and that we would then in that moment be righteous and be holy before God to be able to have that communion and that fellowship and that relationship. The beautiful thing about that is the more we grow, the easier it is to live holy. The more we grow in that relationship with Christ, the easier it is for us to meet this prerequisite for that relationship of being holy because he changes us over time to become like him. The more we gaze on the Savior, the more we become like him. God is holy and those who fellowship with him must be holy. And this is the prerequisite of the relationship. But verse nine gives us hope gives us a hope of a promise that we can be cleansed. So we have the, the person of the relationship, the prerequisite of the relationship, and the promise of the relationship. And we see this in the first two verses of chapter 2. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm giving you a warning, right? I'm trying to help you understand this relationship with Christ, the holiness of God, so that you will see the importance of not sinning, that you will see the importance of doing everything you can to build that relationship and grow in that relationship and to follow Christ and to live the way that he desires for you to live. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Isn't that a blessing? Not just in salvation, but every day after, he is still our advocate. He is still there in heaven making a plea for us before the Father. Have you thought about that recently? When we've failed and we've gone down that sinful path again and again and again, Christ is there pleading for us as our advocate. Such a beautiful picture. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33 says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator, go-between, advocate, between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Why? 
on our behalf. On our behalf. Christ has entered into the holy places before the presence of God on our behalf. He is our advocate. He is our advocate in salvation, and he is our advocate in our daily walk. His blood is what is presented before God. I think one of the things that we can easily fall into is, is the trap of, we, we, have, we have this statement in our, in our covenant where it says that we will strive to grow in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think if we're not careful, we can misunderstand that concept of striving. And we can turn that concept of striving into, again, trying to, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, trying to, to make ourselves holy, trying to do all the right things and, and, and make everything about us. Make everything about what we do. And yes, we, we are a part of this participation in this relationship. I'm not saying that we don't have anything to do with it, but when our focus is on us in the relationship and, how, and what we're doing and how we're living up, we're missing the point. Our focus is to be on Christ because he is the one who is the only answer to God. He is the only, we can't come to God and say, well, God, I, I did pretty good this week, you know, in my relationship with you, I read my Bible every day and I prayed at least five minutes every day and, you know, even told my coworker a Bible verse. Did pretty good. Didn't yell at my wife nearly as much as I did last week. You know, I, I did pretty good this week, God. That's, that's not how we come to God. God says all of our righteousness, anything that we do in and of our flesh is like filthy garments. It's nothing, it's trash next to what Jesus Christ has done. Our relationship with God is through our advocate, Jesus Christ. He then goes on and he says in verse two, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is our propitiation. That is the Greek word hilismos or hilismos. It means the appeasement of wrath and gaining a goodwill of an offended person, uh, especially when it's referring to uh, a deity. So propitiation is kind of a word we don't really use, uh, except for up here and in the Bible, and we always have to explain it. <laughs> so we don't, really, we don't really use this word in our, in our everyday vernacular, but it's basically the appeasing of the wrath of God, because he is a holy God. And when we sin, there is wrath on that sin. Thankfully, Jesus has paid the price for that sin. He is not only our advocate standing before the Father for us, saying, there's the wounds in my hands and in my side and in my feet. I've paid for this. He's not only doing that, but he is the one that paid for it. He is the one who appeased the wrath of God by giving his life as a sacrifice on the cross. 1 Timothy 2, 5, we already read verse 5, verse 6 says, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 
which is the testimony given at the proper time. He's the mediator because he gave himself a ransom for all. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. 1 John 4.10, just a little bit later in this book, he says, And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, again, the propitiation, the appeasement of the wrath of God for our sins. Romans 3, verses 23 through 26, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, again, as a propitiation, the appeasement of his wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is a holy God and his wrath upon sinful man is great. His wrath upon sinful man is unbearable. It's a punishment that we cannot, we cannot take. We will take apart from Christ, but we cannot bear it. It's an eternal punishment. Yet Jesus Christ came to appease the wrath of God and to allow us to be brought back into a right relationship with the Holy One. I believe the greatest failure of modern evangelism is that we have enticed people to believe in Christ in order to obtain an ancillary benefit of eternity in heaven and not the primary necessity of being brought into a right relationship with a Holy God. Think about that. When you share the gospel, what is your point? What is it that you call people to? Are you calling people to simply avoid hell and gain heaven? Is that really just the gospel? Just a fire escape? I don't want to be punished. Of course I'm going to accept Christ. I don't want to be punished for my sin. Heaven sounds pretty good. If we're not careful in how we present the gospel, there will be a lot of people who will stand before Christ and say, we did all these things in your name. And he'll say, I never knew you because we didn't teach them the gospel. The gospel is that man is sinful and God is holy. And that we in order to have a relationship with him, need Jesus. That is the gospel. It's about us coming back into a right relationship with a holy God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The focus of our belief is not and should not be to a desire to go unpunished for our sin, nor should it simply be to obtain the better of two options. 
The focus of our belief should be in the reality of our sin before a holy God. The necessity of that sin to be punished by just wrath and to therefore fling ourselves wholly at the mercy and grace of Christ as he exchanges his righteousness for our wickedness. Takes upon himself the wrath of God and reunites us in a right relationship with our creator. We have to ask ourselves this morning, is that what I believe? Is that the foundation of my relationship with Jesus? Am I, do I have a relationship with Christ because I understand the holiness of God and my sinfulness in response to that, looking at what Christ has done and believing in what Christ has done so that he can restore that relationship with God? Because I think that makes all the difference in how we look at and how we evaluate this idea of growing in that relationship. Because if it's just a fire escape, if it's just an opportunity for us to make the better of two decisions, no, I don't want punishment. Yes, I want eternal life. That sounds good. If that's all it is to us, then a personal relationship with Christ means nothing. It's just words that we say. But if we understand the reality of the holiness of God, and if we understand the reality of our sinfulness and the separation that we have from him because of that, and we understand the grace and the mercy of Christ, that changes everything. That changes how we view pursuing and growing in that relationship because we understand what it really means. It's not just, I got saved. It's that I have now been made righteous before God through Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer. The unrighteous are made righteous through Christ. This is the promise of the relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the promise. The prerequisite is that God is holy and we have to be holy, but the promise is that through Jesus Christ, we can be holy, not just positionally, but daily. As we know him and as we follow him, as we obey him, we can live holy in that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Finally, the proof of the relationship we see here in verses three through six, <clears throat> says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. By this we know that we have come to know him. That word know him is the word gnosko. Has an, the idea of this intimate knowledge. This knowledge that has been gained over time, spent with something. This knowledge that, is, that has been earned through study and through evaluation, through observation, it's, a, it's knowing through experience. That's what this Greek word gnosko means. It says, by this we know that we know him. There's proof. There's going to be proof that we have this relationship and that we're growing in this relationship. And what is that proof? He says, if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. Commandments. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, 
and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. We'll talk about the last one here in a second. How do we know? What's the first proof? The first proof is that we obey his commands. We obey his commands. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, we have the great commission. And uh, Andy was actually just mentioning this the other day in our, in our um, elders meeting because somebody brought up the verse. And um, we often quote this incorrectly. We often leave out a very important word here. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe. A lot of times we just say, teaching them all that I have commanded you. That's not what he says. He says, teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. It's not just enough to know about Christ. We need to obey Christ. So the proof of us walking in our relationship with Christ, of us growing in our relationship with Christ, the proof of that is going to be obedience to what he has called us to do. We will do the right things. We will follow in obedience. John 14 verses 21 through 24 says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and will make our home with him. Isn't that a beautiful picture of fellowship? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. John 15 verse 10, just a few verses later says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So the reality of our love is flowing from our obedience to his commandments. First John chapter three, a little bit later in this uh, book, verse 24 says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And then later in chapter, verse five, chapter five, verse three, it says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Pretty plain. I think, from the words of Jesus. If we want to prove in our evaluation whether we're growing in Christ, the, the first question we should ask is, how am I doing at obeying him? How am I doing at obeying him? By this we know that we are in him, or that we know him, if we keep his commandments. In order to know him and in order to know his commandments, we have to be in his word. We have to study who he is, what he has said, so that we can then follow after him, so that we can obey what he has commanded us. How often do we look lightly at our own sin? 
Maybe we do take the reality of Christ being our advocate and knowing that he has fully paid the, the ransom for us and we take sin lightly like Paul warns against in Romans chapter six. Should we sin that grace would abound? God forbid. Let it not be so. Why? Because that means we're not growing. We're not growing in that relationship with Christ. We're not growing to look more like him because the proof of growing in our relationship with Christ is that we will be obedient to what he has called us to. As you make that mental assessment of your relationship with Christ, ask yourself, what areas of my life am I not obeying Christ? What areas of my life am I not obeying Christ? Maybe there's one, two, ten. We're all in various stages of growth. None of us is perfect or ever will be perfect. But we should be continually growing in our obedience to what Jesus Christ has commanded. But not only are we to grow by doing what he says, verse 6 tells us, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We are to walk with him and we are to walk like him. We are to emulate Jesus Christ. John uses this word, or Jesus uses this word, and John uh, repeats it a lot, and that is this concept of abiding in Christ. We read it a lot in, in John chapter 15. We read some of it already. This concept of abiding, it's the Greek word meno. It means to remain, stay, or reside. Think about that. Are you residing in Christ? Are you spending time with him? Are you reflecting on him? Are you thinking of him? Are you desiring to know him more? That's what abiding in Christ looks like. John's not the only one who gives us his idea. 1 Peter 2, 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It's not just about obeying the commandments of Christ. It's also about emulating the life of Christ, living like he lived, walking like he walked. John 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They don't just say, that's great. Good job, Jesus, and close the Bible. No, they follow me. They come after me. They, they listen to my voice. They do the things that I say. They follow after me. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, be imitators of me, Paul says, as I am of Christ. Paul says, I am imitating Christ. I am emulating Christ. I'm trying to show you what Christ is like in the way that I live. And you should do that as well. You should follow me as I follow Christ. Ephesians 5.1-2 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We won't, we'll skip over John 15 just for sake of time. Um, but John 15, that great chapter of the vine and the husbandmen and abiding in Christ. I would encourage you to go back and read that. It's the same author as First John. There's a lot of correlations here. My question to you is, when you come to the scripture, why do you come to the scripture? 
What are you looking for when you come to the scripture? We should not come to scripture looking for a religious act to perform, but rather looking for a relationship in which to grow. We should come longing to see what our Savior, our Redeemer, our Brother, our Shepherd, our Lord, our God has said and done so that we may walk with Him in obedience and emulation of His character through the power of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like to strive for personal growth, growth in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ? What does that look like? We have to understand that God is the instigator. God is the instigator. He's the one that started the relationship. Our job is to respond back to him in a right way. God desires to have a relationship with us, not just at the moment of salvation, but as we grow, as we walk, he desires for us to grow in that relationship with him, to continue to grow, to become more like Jesus Christ in obedience and in emulation. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 talks about a church called in the location of Laodicea. And you're probably very familiar with this if you've ever read through the book of Revelation. This is one of those phrases in here that sticks out and people uh, like to use sometimes in joking manners. It says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This is Christ's words. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. That would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold or fine by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a phrase here that so often we use inappropriately. We throw this out in our evangelistic message. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens it, I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. He's not talking. He's not giving that to the world. He's giving that to a church who has become lukewarm in their fellowship with God. They become lukewarm in their relationship with God. They've come to a point where they feel like they've obtained it. We're rich, we're good, we don't need anything else. And he says what? You are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. How many of us maybe look good on the outside, but spiritually inside, even as believers, we're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked because we're not pursuing that growth in our relationship with Christ. God desires that relationship. And he says, if you, if you change, if you grow, if you fan the flames, if you open that door that I'm knocking at, I will come in and I will fellowship with you. 
Christ longs to have an intimate, personal relationship with us through his word. The question is, what are we striving for? Have we become complacent in our pursuit of knowing and obeying and emulating Christ? Is it just another activity that we do to read our Bible, or is there purpose in it? Is there desire in it? Are we pursuing something? I'm going to close with just a few thoughts from some different authors and preachers over the years on this subject of of knowing Christ. Puritan preacher John Owen said this in his book, Communing with God. He's talking about everything that he's, he's going to discuss. This is in the first chapter, and he's, he's, uh, he's going to be talking about all these different ways that we commune with God. And he says this, And this we shall do, if God permit, in the meantime, praying that God the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has, of the riches of his grace, recovered us from a state of enmity into a condition of communion and fellowship with himself, that we may have such a taste of his sweetness and excellencies therein as to be stirred up to a further longing after the fullness of his salvation and the eternal fruition of him in glory. Charles Spurgeon once said, I had rather be blind, deaf, and dumb and lose my taste and smell than not love Christ. To be unable to appreciate him is the worst of disabilities. It is the death of the soul. Do you feel like your spiritual life is dead? May I offer that it's because you don't pursue loving Christ. St. Ignatius said, apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. How often we are pulled in by the things of this world. Apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. Isaac Ambrose gave this quote, nations and all nations, gold and all gold, jewels and all jewels, angels, Yes, all angels and all these and every all beside them, what are they in comparison to Christ but feathers, shadows, nothing? A Christian cannot tire himself in viewing Jesus. We know that looking at one person becomes monotonous unless that one is all. Think about that. Looking at one person is monotonous unless that one person is everything. Is that what Christ is to you? Is he everything? Is he all? Another Charles Spurgeon quote says, the more you know about Christ, the less you'll be satisfied with superficial, superficial views. The more you deeply study his life and the fullness of his grace, the more you will see the king and his beauty. You will long more and more to see Jesus. Is that the experience of your personal relationship with Christ? Do you get up every day longing to know Christ more? That's where it begins. When we have a right view of the gospel and we understand 
who Christ is, the person of this relationship. We understand who God is and what is required to have a relationship with him, those prerequisites. When we see the beauty of the promise that is given to us of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. We will truly desire to know him. And as we know him more and more, the proof of us knowing him will be evidenced in our obedience and in our emulation of Christ. How is your personal walk with Christ? Father, we thank you that no matter where we are at this morning, you are a God who is full of grace and mercy and love. I think of those verses to the church at Laodicea that had just become lukewarm, doing the same things over and over, feeling satisfied in themselves. And yet you were not willing to give up on them. You called them to repent. You called them to pursue you. And God, I know even in my own life, it's so easy to fall prey to becoming complacent. To become complacent with knowledge about you and not knowledge of you. God, I pray that we would be a people who know you intimately. That we would be a people who don't just have the ability to spout verses and don't just have all the information when someone has a Bible question, but that we know you intimately. We have an experience with you as our Savior. We have an experience with you as our Lord, as our Master. God, I pray that we would be people who would be able to give quotes like those of these great believers of the past who had these close relationships with you, that our heart would truly ring out that you are all in all, that you are everything to us, that we would desire to know you above anything else. And that through that, Lord, you would change us to make us more like Jesus Christ, that we would see the evidence of you working in and through us, that we would obey you more, that we would emulate you more, that when others look at us, they would see Jesus because we have spent so much time with him. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done for us in salvation. We thank you for your love for us. We pray that we would live godly lives for you in response. For it's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.